Wednesday. We're the middle of the week here. What do we got on deck? What's happening? Today on the show, I'm talking to NASA's Dave Racewine about the quest to go supersonic. The agency aims to end a 50-year ban on supersonic travel by defining the thunderous sound of a sonic boom. We're going to learn all about that, how it's built, how it's moved around, logistics behind it. We'll get deep. The supply chain, it's getting litigious. Bed Bath & Beyond, they filed a $31.7 million suit against OOCL and Convoy, and Dat's battle moves forward in court. We got Freightways' Rachel Premack here to talk about it. Plus, we might even work through some wedding logistics. Super trucker Justin Martin, he brings the community, the driver community perspective on speed limiters, ELDs, hydrogen tanker flares, poor strap work, a deadly dust storm, lumper appreciation week. Silence is deafening and taunting opposing teams' fans. Let's tip the band, then we'll get right into it. Supply chain challenges are not always easy, but the commitment from the team at Dunavant Logistics to take on that responsibility is unwavering. Dunavant, logistically speaking, they're at the center of it all. Go and visit them at dunavant.com. But in the meantime, let's visit with our editorial director. It's Rachel Premack. Hello, Rachel. Hey, how are you doing? How's it going? I, I saw you adjusting your, your corner as you, you build out your studio even more and more each time I see you. Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got a microphone now. I have headphones. I have a fake tree or a fake Ooh. plant from Wayfair. It's, it's all coming together. Wait, Wayfair? So you, you didn't furnish your apartment uh, at Bed Bath & Beyond, perhaps? I did not. I did not. Partially thanks to their lack of, uh, you know, e-commerce, their dependence on... Uh, brick and mortar which we're about to get into right now i heard you know i heard bed bath a lot of companies have gotten in trouble recently for going against their main consumer going against their brand and one of the interesting things i found before we even get into the suit how they kind of found themselves here in this bankruptcy is they went against their own customer base their customer wanted products from KitchenAid and and roomba and these things and bed bath and beyond was like oh we'll just we'll like amazon basics this stuff and that, that's not really yeah. how consumers want to buy it yeah exactly like if I'm going to Amazon, I'm going for, you know, the the quick, easy, cheap, don't have to think about it. If I'm going to Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, we're talking weddings, that's the kind of place where I'm, you know, registering for my KitchenAid stand mixer or I'm I'm going for my my kind of like big, you know, top of the line, big brand, big purchases. Uh so yeah, I agree with you. They they went against I I feel like I feel like for brands like this, it's like you got to balance between what it is that my 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 niches but also trying to modernize and adapt to the modern era and i feel like that's a really tough balance to strike bed bath and beyond unfortunately did, clearly did not strike that balance but it's interesting kind of seeing different retailers try to navigate this you bring up an interesting point too like something like the KitchenAid stand it's such a wedding registry item cuz it's you know 300 400 stand mixer it's an aspirational like kitchen kind of item for a lot of people and to, it, it, a Bed Bath & Beyond version of that doesn't replace that. You need the actual KitchenAid one. Exactly. And it's, I think it's 450 now. As someone, Ooh. I was looking at it. I'm It's either 350 or 450. I'm looking at it to register for it. And 
Black I don't know. Friday. Someone, someone who really likes me has to buy that one. <laughs> Black Friday. They're always around like two ninety nine around Black Friday. That's a good time to target them. Um, op- op- Best Buy Open Box also a good one on that. You can get like eighty dollars off it as long as uh, that doesn't bother you. But this is a really interesting story. So Greg Miller, who reports that Bed Bath and Beyond they filed for bankruptcy protection April twenty third. We all heard that. They're closing four hundred and seventy five stores. But what's really interesting is the COVID era shipping era has gone into this. And during that, we said so many times, why don't any of these, or people asked, why don't shippers strike back? Why don't they go against the steamship lines? It's no secret that in this business, contracts aren't worth the paper that they're printed on. But this particular case, that's a $31.7 million suit against OOCL, is all about that. It's about not honoring MCQs, which were um, minimum quantity, sorry, MQCs, minimum quantity commitments. Exactly. So yeah, last week, Bed Bath & Beyond filed a claim with the Federal Maritime Commission against OOCL. Uh, They're part of the Chinese state-owned ocean carrier carrier Costco. They said, as you mentioned, that OOCL did not meet those minimum quality commitments uh, in 2020 and 2021 during the peak of the supply chain crisis. As a result, Bed Bath & Beyond had to go to the spot market, where Bed Bath & Beyond claims they had to go to the spot market uh, you know, this is all alleged by Bed Bath and Beyond in their in their suit. And as we all know, the, you know, trying to secure capacity over during the spot market during 2020 and 2021, that's 10x the normal rate. You know, containers yeah. were going for 20,000 20, per container uh, going from China to, to North America West during that time. So it makes sense that if if a retailer was struggling with that, that they would burn through cash pretty quickly and it would be a, it would be a big issue, especially during during the height of the supply chain crisis. Yeah, you know, and, and Best Buy, uh, I mean, sorry, Bed Bath & Beyond, big BCO, uh, a company like them, they go to a steamship line and they say, hey, we need um, 50,000 TUs moved on this lane and, and 10,000 moved on this lane. And those are their uh, those are their minimum quantity commitments. Right. That's the agreement they meant. But what happens in freight all the time, this happens in ocean and it happens on land freight, is that when the spread between contract market gets too deep, Either player is going to use the leverage on their side. And what happened here was, as you mentioned, it was like it, it, their contract may have been for a fa- I don't know exactly what it was, but it was probably between $1,000 and $2,000 at most to move a container where they had to go in that market and spend $20,000. Do you think they have any hope of, of winning this? And is this going to open the wound for other shippers to jump in on it? Because if you're still an active shipper, you still kind of have to worry about retaliation. There's only a few oligarch shipping companies that run all this. Yeah, it kind of seems like Bed Bath & Beyond is in a uniquely good position to stick up for other shippers. It's interesting because on, on the trucking side, the shippers have basically all the power. Um, and compared to shippers, the carriers on the trucking side is, is incredibly dis- disaggregated. Um, but when we look at the ocean carrier side, there are you know seemingly, I imagine, hundreds of thousands of shippers and only seven to nine big ocean carriers that they can rely on. So the fact that the ocean market is so tightly consolidated, especially in that uh, Asia to North America type movement, it, as you mentioned, it, it really does make it hard for shippers to stand up for themselves. I think if they kind of start, they start, you know, pushing back on these, on these ocean carriers, it could be a good move for them. But, you know, like you said, it's kind of hard to picture because if you burn one of them, it, it, it's not like the other ones are going to be clamoring to take you on if, if you kind of prove yourself, you know, to be a challenging customer. So 
that's just well, look, my that's, that's all I can imagine how that would the, go down. The steamship lines they took the bag when they could. You know, they took that twenty thousand when they could. They broke some of these relationships. They they caused these problems. But now we're in a much different market, and they've lost all their pricing power. Amazingly, they've lost all their pricing exactly. power. They're right. They're like right back where they started in twenty nineteen. Uh, Henry Byers just put an article. He said uh, second second half recovery as we've been talking on in here. You can go and shred that. We're not seeing that anymore. <laughs> Here's a, here's a chart right here, and there you see we're right back at those 2019 levels. What's going on with the recovery here, Rachel? Yeah, so we've been talking, or rather, you know, public pri- public uh, executives have been talking on their first er- first quarter earnings calls and their earnings calls at the end of last year saying, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, first half of 2023 is going to be rough, but... At the second half, we're going to come back. It's it's coming back. We promise. And it's it's you know looking at the data that Henry pulled out. Uh, that's really not. It, it doesn't. That doesn't seem so likely. One of the big uh, areas that Henry highlighted was this idea of the job market. That's something that people really looked at. Oh, you know, unemployment's so low. Things are going. Things are going well. But Henry kind of pointed out a few different data points. You know. Uh, job openings have have declined. The amount of folks filing for unemployment has increased. There's a lot of sort of softness bubbling up in the consumer side of the economy that people have been ignoring or maybe not. Maybe these executives aren't factoring into their projections for the second half of 23. So, you know, looking at Henry's article, I think it seems like it's a bit of wish, wistful thinking on the part of a lot of these public companies that they think that uh, the second half of twenty three is gonna gonna be gonna be a, a nice a nice rebound. Well, steamship lines big gatekeepers to ocean capacity. DAT big gatekeeper to inland capacity, trucking capacity. The big name out there, and there is a legal battle brewing, and it's getting really interesting. It's DAT versus Convoy, and this all started. When DAT sued Convoy, Convoy was a DAT customer. They said DAT took trade secrets to build their own load board, so they sued them. And then um, Convoy countersued them and and alleged that DAT has these monopolistic practices. And the judge is listening. What's going on here? Yeah, so our colleague J.P. Hampstead wrote about this earlier this week. Uh, as you mentioned, this legal battle has been brewing for just over a year Uh as you mentioned, DAT sued Convoy for uh, allegedly using DAT's trade secrets to build its own load board. They said that Convoy had been building this load board as far back as 2020 when they were still working with DAT. Anyway, so last week we saw the first major ruling in this case uh, at, at the at the federal level. The federal judge dismissed all but one of DAT's six claims, and they did not dismiss any of Convoy's claims. And One of the biggest takeaways from this is that the court is allowing Convoy to proceed with this claim that DAT's contracts uh, essentially is uh, building builds monopoly or constitutes as monopoly power for DAT in the spot trucking market. Now, DAT only has about sixty four percent only has sixty four percent of market share. The judge says that sixty four percent of market share isn't enough to make a monopoly claim, but the way that they've worded and proceeded with these contracts against uh, not against but with their business partners. Uh, the judge says that it's it's credible for Convoy to claim that DAT could be seeking monopoly power or has monopoly power. Well, Cambridge Capital's Benjamin Gordon, he tweeted out, this is a watershed case. 
When we look back on 2023 is the year the court ended the DAT stronghold on load boards. And like the U.S. versus Microsoft case in 2000, will the court force DAT to separate its load board from its pricing and other tools? He also says DAT may regret their hardball legal tactics. A lot of freight brokers are upset with DAT. This case may give them an opportunity to speak up, and many of them are already doing so. You're hearing that on social media. Our own founder and CEO, Craig Fuller, said this could be the biggest antitrust case in freight tech since the com date since data block competing fuel cards on their merchant network. It resulted in the Department of Justice issuing one of the biggest blows to ComData's tight grip on the fuel card market. And he says the irony in all of this is that DAT is the one that sued Convoy to begin with over their load board initiative. DAT has far more to lose here since a lot of brokers would love to prove that the DAT contract is illegal but are nervous about retaliation. Convoy has nothing to lose in that regard. I, I mean, I think what they're saying is definitely really interesting. And we're, what we're seeing during the current Biden administration is that just across various inter- industries, healthcare, tech, um, thinking about healthcare again, thinking about uh, uh, hearing aids and other sorts of various industries and, and, and uh, products, we're definitely seeing a push against, uh, we're seeing a, a push for more competition throughout American business and it seems like trucking on the on the surface would is, would would be precluded from that conversation as we were just discussing earlier the trucking carrier market is pretty disaggregated hundreds of thousands of of carriers but looking at the load board side could be one area where the Biden administration's take on increased competition and curbing uh monopoly power could could take hold um, so it is it is a really interesting time for this case to be to be discussed. Now, I caught up with the the article's author, JP, just about an hour ago. I uh, he was briefing me on what's going on here. And he said the, the real question is, um, if it comes to it, if the judge moves this forward and DAT decides to settle with Convoy because they feel that they're going to lose, will Convoy take that settlement or will they fight for the rest of the industry to prove that DAT's contracts are illegal. And I think that what's important about that is that's what a lot of the industry is watching. Is Convoy just in it for themselves to get themselves out of it? Or is this a fight over what a load board actually means and how you can have those mm-hmm. contracts? That's interesting. I mean, it's a it's a kind of an opportune time for a lot of these companies to be looking for what their next niche is. I feel like a lot of these automated freight brokerages that popped up in mid 2010s to late 2010s it turns out they can't automate the freight brokerage market it's it's not as easy or they they can but it's not quite the the one fell swoop that i think a lot of them were were kind of projecting or predicting um and and i think they kind of need a new a new business to be involved a lot of them are looking at at fuel cards that that's one big area where where a lot of these uh you know automated freight brokers are are looking into so Low boards could be kind of one of the next the next uh, niches for for uh, companies, you know, like like Convoy or uh, Transfix to look into. Now, I know you've been stressing out a little bit. When is your wedding? You're, you've been planning a wedding. You've been trying to get your bridesmaids figured out, your gifts <laughs> figured out, the decorations figured out. There's a lot of logistics involved in wedding planning. Yeah. So my wedding is October seventh. I was tweeting last night about all of the really cringy and terrible decor that is available for bachelorette parties now i should note this is for my friend for whom i'm a maid of honor for her bachelorette parties 
not this weekend, but next weekend. So that was more for her wedding. But yes, everyone's getting married right now and there's a lot going on. You know, so ours was, we had to do ours on difficult mode. We, my 10 year anniversary is coming up and we had the venue already picked out. We, um, I think they're going to roll this. Let's play. <laughs> yeah. So that's my wedding right there. We had the venue already picked out. We were going to go to, um, pier Anthony's pier four. It was like this old sort of gangstered out eatery in Boston that was right on the seaport. And what happened is in July, my wedding was coming up in October that they sold the land. So we were like left out in the lurch. Very thankfully, my mother reached out to someone at uh, the Seaport Hotel and they were able to like honor our contract with, because uh, they had an opening, they had someone cancel. So it just lined up and the Seaport is beautiful. We actually looked at the Seaport. We couldn't afford it when we first went. That's why we wow. went with Anthony's Pier 4. So they hooked us in. We went with a nice church. But I got to say, the most important part of logistics, I've been to a lot of weddings, is you can't have a long amount of time where people can't eat from when you say I do to when the reception is. I've been to someone there's like three hours. This is insane. People will get too drunk. They'll get angry. They'll get pissed off. You got to like have that. You got to bring people to the location. Where are you doing yours? So it's going to be in Pittsburgh. It will be, I think this is a good, there's a few, a few things we're looking at to optimize for that. The venue, the ceremony reception will be at the same place. It will be at uh, Phipps Conservatory, which is a botanical garden in Pittsburgh. Um, And we're doing a first look, meaning we'll get a lot of those wedding pictures. I see you guys did that in in your wedding, or I think you did, just based off of the timing of when the photos happened. Doing that first look and getting all those wedding portraits out of the way before the actual ceremony and reception is really big, because otherwise the bride and groom are off for like an hour taking pictures together. And that's, I mean, like kind of the point of the wedding. I mean, obviously the point of the wedding is to get married, but part of it is to spend time with people who you don't see all that often, who have all flown in to to come celebrate you. So it makes sense to do all those, all those pictures and all that early. So you can see the people you, you're, who spent a lot of money to come see you and, and, and to come spend the, spend the day with you. D- DJ, um, anyway. DJ or band. Because I, I, I went band. with a band, I highly recommend it. Yeah, we've got a live band, which is exciting. Yes, much, much better. Now, um, yeah. and congratulations on the wedding. You guys can stop that. Before I let you go, Lumber, it's Lumber Appreciation Week, a six-day oh, yes. uh, event of celebration that has just been announced. Guys, show the, show the picture here, so you get an idea of what Lumber Appreciation Week is. What do you have to say to all the, the lumpers in the world? Um, I have to say these six days are all for you. I mean, I appreciate lumpers. I've never actually dealt with a lumper, but yeah, I'm I'm all for lumper appreciation week. I don't know if lumper Twitter has has caught wind of this, but let's go, let's do this. I haven't even <laughs> broken into lumper Twitter. I, I, there's not many lumpers that I, I've run across. There's, there's lumper horror no, stories. There's no lumper Twitter. There I is mean, really maybe none. there is. Maybe there if is. you're a lumper Twitter, reach out. We'll get you on what. The, okay, this isn't my show, but. Reach out. Well, well, we'll no, we will. We'll make it happen. If not, we'll bring them on during your segment so they can take your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll swap out. All right. Well, Rachel, I really appreciate it. New Modes is is coming out. Modes this week. Modes next Thursday. Yes, yes. It will be out. The show will be out tomorrow, and a new article will be out tomorrow, which I'm actually writing about Alaskan trucking and what's going on up there. All right. Well, I'll ask you about that. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, everybody. Meanwhile, look at the praying mantis. So fierce.
undeterred by the claw of this massive construction equipment. Spirit animal, indeed. All right, let's talk supersonic. Let's, let's talk supersonic with NASA. Before we do, take a look at what we're talking about. Aviation allows us to explore the far corners of the world. For decades, NASA researchers have worked on ways to make air travel faster, safer, and more environmentally friendly. Now, we are prepared to help open the doors to a new market of commercial supersonic air travel over land and cut our flight time in half. But first, we need to prove to regulators that faster and quieter is possible. This is our mission. This is our quest. Not long ago, industry flew passengers at supersonic speeds, getting people to their destinations with time to spare. But this came with its challenges. The loud sonic boom associated with supersonic flight was so disruptive to people on the ground that the FAA banned commercial supersonic flight over land in 1973. To prove the startling sonic boom can be reduced to an acceptable soft thump sound, we will use our uniquely shaped X-59 research aircraft built by Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. We will fly the X-59 over a number of U.S. communities to collect data on what sound level people consider acceptable. National and international regulators will then use this data to consider lifting the current bans on commercial supersonic travel over land. If that happens, our mission will be complete. Together, we'll make history. Together, we'll complete the quest. Very, very cool. Let's talk to Dave Richwine, Quest Mission Technology Integration Lead at NASA about this supersonic jet. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound great. All right, great. I have a few technical difficulties, but thank you. You sound clear as a sonic boom. Okay, well, I hope, hopefully not, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, that, that is your specialty. The only thing I know about sonic booms is that guile in Street Fighter 2 does them. Can you tell us what uh, causes a sonic boom? What is it? Well, the sonic boom would be from an airplane as much like if someone fired a, a bullet from a, a gun and you, you hear that sonic boom or that, that object going faster than the speed of sound. So essentially it's just the boom of the airplane where the the sound is not going as fast as the airplane at that point, and the molecules collect and you get that sonic boom. So what we're trying to do is turn that sonic boom into kind of a sonic thump by shaping the airplane a little differently. So I, on that video, they said this has been banned since 1973. So 50-year anniversary on commercial vehicles producing sonic booms. Uh, can you share a little bit about that ban? How did that come about? Well, interesting enough, um, it's been a little over 75 years since Chuck Yeager flew the X-1 supersonically, and so it took about 25 years of research before they put the ban in place, and there was a lot of activities that went on in supersonic research. There were some uh, tests in the 70s. Uh, one of the more famous tests was done at Oklahoma City, where there was a lot of complaints about that sonic boom. 
And then there was some noise restrictions put in place in the early 70s. And then the ban essentially came into effect in uh, April of 73, um, essentially wanted them to work out the technologies and, you know, people were complaining about the booms and such. And so in kind of response to the Concorde wanting to fly over land, that ban was put in place. How fast do I have to and go rightfully to? So. Well, I was going to say, how fast do I have to go to produce a, a sonic boom? Isn't that over like 700 miles an hour? Well, it, it depends on how high you are in the altitude and it change, the speed of sound changes uh, depending on all, all those factors. But the altitudes that we want to fly, it's roughly uh, roughly around that. Uh, I think it's uh, 670, uh, forget the exact number. But we're going to be flying 1.4 times that. So we're going to be flying around 925 miles an hour. So how long has NASA been working on this supersonic research for? Well, um, you know, NASA and the Air Force have been working on it for almost six or seven decades, really. But I'd say in the last 15 or 20 years, we've put a lot more emphasis in what I call this getting the boom down to where we can fly a supersonic flight over land. It, it, that's got to be part of the design, too. I was looking at that X-59. It's a very sharp, sleek jet. What goes into the design of that, and how does that create that, um, I believe you called it, what, a sonic thump? Right. Well, so um, essentially what we're trying to do is control that pressure wave that comes off the airplane and creates that sonic thump or sonic boom, which we want to turn into a sonic thump. And so you're trying to manage the volume of the airplane, the cross-sectional area of the airplane, and also the lift distribution that comes from the airplane. I don't want to get into all the details here, but the long nose helps you manage the volume. It's, you know, slow volume increase. And then there's a lot of things that go in in the back end that we're trying to both manage that volume of the airplane so it's a smooth, you get a smooth pressure wave over the airplane versus that larger pressure wave or, or series of pressure waves that turns into what we call an end wave that creates that sonic boom. So we're trying to create something that's more gentle, that is really a sonic pump that, that does not, uh, you know, bother the general public. What is an X-plane? This is X-59. Have there been 58 other ones? What, 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 what are these things? Well, I, I mentioned the X-1, which was, you know, what Chuck Yeager flew in, uh, 19, uh, in the 1946-47 range and, and so on. And there's been many X-airplanes that have done a whole variety of, um, you know, rockets and military prototypes and all kinds of things over the, year, over the years. Um, X-29 was a forward-swept wing. I mean, it goes on and on. So X-planes are really one-of-a-kind airplanes that are used to look at a certain research goal or a certain specific thing, a purpose-built airplane. In this case, our purpose is to, you know, learn about the design of the airplane and that, you know, we can design an airplane and use those tools to make a low-thump airplane. And then following, following that, we'll use this airplane as a tool to help us get the data that we need to, uh, help, you know, get for the um, regulators that we want to move forward on. So if, if I'm outside walking my dog, Randy Savage, and one of these were to fly overhead, what would it sound like? Um, well, there's two things going on. A lot of times people think about airport noise or noise um, from your engine. But really, when you're up flying up at a high altitude, you're not going to hear that jet noise that people are kind of more accustomed to on the ground around an airport. So this airplane, really, you won't hear it except for that sonic thump. It, it will be flying up at you know, high altitudes in the, you know, 50,000 foot range. Um, so you really won't even hear it except for that slight sonic thump or like a heartbeat going by. That is Lisa on the X for the X-59. I'm looking at this getting assembled right now, and it looks really, 
long, like just judging by people as scale. I don't have a banana to, to lay down to give me perfect scale, though. How long is the nose on that? Well, so so I don't know how many bananas it would be equal to, but uh, the, the nose, the airplane's roughly around 100 feet long, which is the size of a basketball court. And uh, the nose is about 38 feet, which is, you know, roughly around a third of that. Um, so, yeah, the nose is a very gentle and long nose. And again, that's to get that slow ramp up in pressure so that you don't create a, a shockwave from the front of the airplane or you create a very weak one. So what are the goals of the mission? The mission Is it just proving to regulators that you can fly that fast and that high while only creating a, a thump, or, or what else goes into it? Well, so it's kind of what you just mentioned. Though some of the goals that we talked about in this, this first phase is to show that we can build, use our tools to build a low-boom airplane um, that can fly safe, safely around the national airspace. And so the first phase is really about designing and building that safe airplane. And then during phase two, we want to go out and fly over the test range at NASA Armstrong at Edwards Air Force Base just to prove that all this technology works as we designed, and it works in real atmospheric conditions. So we understand basically all the physics of the problem. And then we want to use this airplane as a tool essentially to go out and get that community response data. So we might fly over your house, for example, and you would, you would get surveyed and say, you know, how did you feel about that boom? Did you hear it? And so obviously the objective is, in our case, is ultimately we don't want people to hear that sonic boom. But in the case of doing surveys, we would create louder booms so that we could create a threshold that future designers could design to. Interesting. Now, this manufacturing has me curious now. So it, are, are these already built? How many are there? And what sort of goes into the production here? It looks pretty intensive with your team. Yeah, very intensive. So, um, you know, many X airplanes have had sister aircraft. Some have not. Um, this is just a one-of-a-kind airplane. So we have one X-59, and uh, we have been spent the last couple of years building the airplane. Um, last six months have been a lot of wiring and checkouts, and we're just entering a phase where we're doing powered checkouts. So all the airplane is built, the wires are in, all the systems are in the airplane. I mean, it's looking like a really cool airplane that's ready to go. We have to do some integrated testing and go out and do some t more testing out on the ramp, uh, some engine tests and so on. So we're really in that final phase of checking the airplane out. And, you know, we really hope to have the airplane first flight by the end of the year. What goes into that testing? Because I, I was looking through some of your your videos and I was watching some on the simulation that goes into it and, the, and, that, and the, the very famous wind tunnel that you have that you put this through. And obviously now you're doing some flying. Tell me about this testing phase. So the, some of the testing has been a lot of wind tunnel testing that we use to validate our systems and the performance of the airplane and the sonic boom of the airplane and so on. So there's been a lot of wind tunnel tests, also a lot of simulation work. Again, you want to we have a simulator that flies just like the airplane. So this simulator would allow us to go and replicate, you know, how we're going to fly the airplane and all the different flight systems in the airplane. But then the testing that I've been really referring to now is more like ground testing. Um, you know, making sure the gear works right, making sure our forward vision system works correctly, making sure the hydraulics and electrical and all the cockpit displays. Then we want to go out and go out onto the ramp and start doing like engine testing and high speed taxi tests to make sure the airplane's working like we, we planned. So a lot of different types of testing that have gone along along the way to contribute to the overall mission. What's been the public opinion on this? What, what kind of feedback are you getting and, and what kind of results do you want to give to the public? 
Well, I think the, the key thing is the results that we're trying to give to the public is, um, I think that from a technical perspective is that we want to have a tool, this airplane is going to be a tool that we can go get community response data and provide this to the, the regulators uh, moving forward. But, you know, I think, you know, we also you have to think about, um, you know, we want society to be excited about the NASA work that we're doing. I mean, we're doing some really fun work and, you know, we sometimes we go to these air shows and things and talk to the kids and, you know, it's really got us that STEM engagement thing, I think is a really important aspect of that. But, you know, eventually we want to go out to the public and, and expose them to these sonic thumps and, and get their opinion as to, you know, how we move forward with the regulators to, to hopefully remove this ban so that, you know, in the, in the future, you and I could be flying across the country in half the time, well, or across the Atlantic or Pacific in half the time that we do right now. Oh, yeah. Concord style, right? Well, what happens to all this data that you collect? Where, where is it going to? So, so we work with the FAA and what's called ICAO, which is the one of the regulatory agencies for, um, for, for international regulatory agencies. And so we work with them and, and, and get the data. So with the data that they're looking for is, is the sonic boom levels and looking at the community response to those. And so it's a lot of uh, ground measurements and statistics that go along with this uh, on, in addition to the community response. So, you know, we may fly over your house and you may say, oh, you know, I didn't even hear that boom. But, you know, I've heard them over the last couple of days and I feel this about those sonic thumps. And so we take all that data and give it to the, the regulators and then it helps them set a standard for either sonic boom levels in the future or, or you know, or how the, the path forward that they want to take. Are, are we limited by tech on the, because this is a very specialized airplane, it has to look a certain way. Could you apply this to a commercial uh, airliner, like a 767 or something, or a cargo plane? So I, I think you could apply a lot of the tools. Um, the airplane is obviously a one-of-a-kind airplane that is built to be um, you know, maybe more cost-effective, but... Um, so you wouldn't want maybe a commercial airplane to kind of look like this airplane. But what our airplane does do is the sonic thump from this airplane has been designed so that it will replicate that of a more a larger commercial product. So they will sound the same. So that was our objective is to do that in the most cost-effective way possible to get that data so that designers of future supersonic commercial airplanes um, can use both the tools that come out of this and the data, the regulatory part of that. So what's next? Are you pretty confident that we can get past this ban? We can de- we can defy the speed of sound with a sonic thump? Well, I, I don't know we're defying the speed of sound, but um, I, I do believe, you know, we put a lot of work in this, and I think our tools are such that um, we, we believe we can do it. Um, it's just we really need to understand all the atmospheric effects. You know, the atmosphere does a lot of, interesting things to the sonic booms as they as they go through the atmosphere and so we really feel like we need to understand all that and not just have it work in perfect conditions but work in all those imperfect conditions and weather conditions and you know all all those things we need to make sure that we have a robust solution moving forward now dave before i let you go i ask everyone from nasa this always curious my own little personal head pull what is your favorite space movie my favorite space movie Oh, man, I got a couple, but I think I like Apollo 13 and Mars. And, you know, both of those, you know, really had like, you know, the strong technical kind of like the geeky engineer thing going, yeah. but also just the, the sheer 
difficulty of the problem and the teamwork that was involved. And, you know, I think watching both of those movies kind of got me excited a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I love The Martian. They're going to science the S out of it. That was, that's the best part of that, that film right there. You know, a lot of people from NASA pick, pick The Martian. Um, apparently, that's, that's at least somewhat realistic of what life may be like on, on Mars. Were you an astronaut? Yeah, I mean, Apollo, Apollo 13's a little older, but I think it just had a lot of, um, you know, just the, the sheer problem that they had to endure was, is quite interesting as well. Maybe for the older group. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. Very, very cool. Dave, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for coming on. People who want to learn more about NASA's Quest mission, where can I send them to? Uh, well, we have a Quest mission site at, at on NASA and ARMD, um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of good information there, a lot of good graphics information and STEM thing for the kids and teachers as well. Very nice. I hope to see you on one of these X-59s at the Chattanooga Airport one of these days. Uh, keep up the good work, NASA. Happy to have you on anytime. Take care. All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Good stuff. All right, everybody. Elsewhere. Let's see what's going on here. Don't you love playoff hockey? Look at this guy with the devil mask on, waving at the Bieber brothers. Or these are the Paul brothers right here. Look at him. He's calling him an a-hole. How can you call someone an a-hole? That's just funny. Like, you go in an opposing team stadium. There's a guy dressed like a devil at a devil's game. It's game seven. You lose, you get waved at. A lot of sucker punches, too. Look, Ranger fans. Living up to your reputation out there. Sad to see it. Let's talk to Super Trucker. Let's ring the horn. What's up, man? Love it. You, you go to those Eagles games. You ever get into any uh, fan altercations? What are your thoughts? Fair or foul? Game seven, dressed like a devil, not touching the guy, just a little wave goodbye. No touching is fine, you know, but with alcohol involved, you know, that, that, can, that can change very quickly. All the Eagles games I've been to, everyone's been pretty well behaved. The crowd I go with, we're, we're you know, upstanding citizens. So we, we do our best to behave ourselves and represent our city in the best light possible. I've been to multiple Jets games, and most of them have not been at the Jets stadium. Like, I went to one in Oakland, and I saw a group of Jets fans fighting. They were not fighting Raiders fans. They were beating the ass out of each other. And then I saw another (laughs) one in San Diego, the Chargers. And again, some Jets fans, were some guy in a Curtis Martin shirt was punching the hell out of some guy in a Vinny Testaverde shirt. The, the meanest crowd I've seen in person in a a Philadelphia game was the Phillies. Um, The first Phillies game I went to. I can't even remember what game it was, but um, yeah, the crowd in front of us had like a couple of fans from the opposing team and everybody in the crowd wanted them dead. Uh, dangerous. Well, hey, we, we do have a, a serious clip to look at here. This was a tragedy mm-hmm. that happened over near Springfield, Illinois. Roll the tape. There's this big dust storm here. Um, Justin, what are we looking at? So apparently they're still digging into this, um, but what we know now for now is that I guess farmers were recently clearing the fields and conditions are dry. Uh, the winds are really high. Uh, big sto- a big dirt storm, sorry, uh, rushes across. And it was like 30 miles long, um, yeah. zero visibility conditions, um, 30 commercial vehicles involved, 40 people, 40 cars, um, two semis caught fire. Uh, seven people are dead. You know, they first reported it as five and now it's up to seven now. Um, but I, me personally, until we see more data coming out of this, to me, it's just all the hallmarks of what's wrong with trucking right now. Too many people following too closely, not enough people communicating on the CB. Um, this easily could have been avoided by just radioing everyone behind you saying, hey, can't see anything, pull over, shut it down. Yeah. This is no different than, This is no different than driving through fog. Uh, yeah. I've driven through conditions like this many times, and you just turn your radio on and, and know what's, what's going on up ahead. 
Yeah, the Illinois State Police, they said um, over 30 injuries, uh, those seven deaths, injuries range from minor to life-threatening, and the ages range from two years old to 80 years old. And you can see it's just a regular yeah. highway. Everyone just got, anyone who would be driving got yeah. caught up in that. Now, you mentioned online, let's talk about this. You said CBs could have potentially prevented this fatality. How so? Is it, elaborate on this culture you're talking about here. Well, the more you have people talking to each other about what's going on as far as like road conditions, the better it is for everybody. Because when you got so many people stacking up like that, you don't have the reaction time to, you know, if, if you're going from 70 miles an hour to zero in an instant, you know, that, that you can, you can push that wave back by telling guys, you know, a mile, two miles further back, Hey, slow it down. There's an accident up ahead. You don't want to be caught by surprise. And that's what the CB radio helps, helps avoid. Why can't we integrate this? Like can Google maps work with, traffic service or some sort of weather service to give you not like an amber alert but like, well, like almost like an amber alert if you're riding into a situation like this like why can't your gps notify you because we also need the passengers because that maybe the truckers know what's going on but then they start suddenly slowing the trucks the, all the four-wheelers are still going 80 90 miles per hour driving into hell yeah no the, i mean most of your car gps's nowadays will have like an alert for traffic but it's usually after the fact yeah you know when this stuff happens in real time the cb radio is still your best best bet and even in your car like I, i'm terrible at this i should have one in my car but they have portable cb radios you know handheld radio units that work just fine and the range doesn't need to be five miles down the road you know anything a mile or two up ahead that's all you need yeah yeah well what can we do to like make people do that you think anything can't shame a driver into cb in kenya make make cb radios cool again i guess have more mm-hmm. movies featuring cb radios isn't mud dog trying to do that isn't that isn't that his whole thing? <laughs> mud, mud, mud duck. <laughs> mud duck, yes. He, he, he who shall not be named. He, he may have gotten more C, C, uh, CB radios taken out of trucks than, than put in, I yeah, would have to assume at absolutely. this point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. net negative. Hey, this was a scary video that um, has been making the rounds yesterday, and I didn't even know what I was looking at at first. All I saw was, like, these two guys roaming around the trailer, and you're like, Get away from it! It turns out this is a this is a hydrogen trailer, right? That is hydrogen that's being uh, emitted out of the back of this. Apparently, it's a pressure safety valve, and when precipitation gets really high, sometimes they have to do this. But I've also heard this is not normal. Yeah, so it, it's not normal, but it is working as designed. It is kind of scary because you're looking at it; it's a big red flame. A lot of the armchair experts immediately got in the comments saying, "Well, it's a red flame, and you know, hydrogen is supposed to be a clear flame." and uh, yeah, it's all this stuff back and forth. It's to the untrained eye, it is absolutely terrifying. I, I would not want to be near there. Um, but you can see the driver still walking around. He's not running in the opposite direction. Um, I think you had a comment on there that I really liked. It was um, dri- the drivers who haul this stuff are trained for those situations, and usually they're the last to start running in the opposite direction. But when they do, keep up. Because I asked, uh, I asked Taylor <laughs> Taylor Barker uh, <laughs> about what to do, and he just said, "Run." I don't Run. know if he, I don't think I don't think he yells hydrogen though. But hey, it, it, like at ACT Expo, I was hearing from Alan Adler just uh, yesterday. He was saying he was on Freightways. Now I heard him, and he said huge hydrogen push, huge hydrogen push. It's finally starting to get mm-hmm. taken seriously at ACT because I think that fleet buyers are starting to be like, oh wait a second, these batteries won't really work. Yeah, yeah. There's there's all kinds of alternative fuels being considered right now. You still have uh, liquid natural gas, hydrogen batteries. You know whatever whatever works. Let's see what uh let's see what Sec Pete had to say about speed limiters. Owners, operators from my district have expressed concern uh, with the FMCSA's proposed rule for heavy vehicle speed limiters. Time and again, um, 
data suggests that it's a, it's a complicated factor about the causation of, of truck passenger accidents, uh, not to mention that the rule could be particularly harmful to small business owners. Uh, does DOT think implementing this rule will be specifically harmful to independent owner operators, and how did DOT decide on the suggested 60-mile-per-hour maximum? I would, well, uh, I'd ask you, Mr. Secretary, to be short. You're kind of violating sorry, my rule Mr. there. Okay. He didn't, uh, didn't give the Secretary the time. Uh, uh, well, the short answer is uh, safety is our North Star. We'll be guided by the data, and we welcome stakeholder and in- industry uh, uh, input as we're uh, working toward finalization of rules. Thank you. So what does that mean? It kind of sounds like they're not doing anything. No, it's a masterclass in, in, in dodging the question because it, it completely counter his, his uh, earlier statement about safety where all this new data about ELDs has come out saying that, you know, safety has gone down because of ELD mandates. And, you know, the the messaging is still, oh, safety is our number one. No, 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 no. It's, it's safety is not, apparently. Um, see, putting speed limiters on all semis in the country is going to just completely upend everything in the supply chain because you have any freight that's going coast to coast that's an extra couple hours or maybe even uh, even another day because of the eld that trucks have to shut down to get freight moved across the country um driver's pay is going to go down even further because most drivers are paid by the mile not the hour um and the the fact that they just completely ignored the question uh it really irritates me like that's something that important that's going to impact the supply chain that much should be should be given like its own separate uh, hearing, not not just two seconds in a, in a budgetary meeting. It feels like we have a lot of this going on. You know, when we were just talking about the number to reach the chargers that we need by 2030, that massive yeah. like 145,000 or, or whatever it is. By the way, Monday, Harbor Trucking Association and Junction Transport will be coming on to clap back against um, against that ruling with the uh, the clean trucking board carb and all that crap. Mm, but. The, the, the thing with speed limiters, so f- forgive me if I'm wrong, though. Like, when I find myself in trouble in traffic, it, usually the biggest obstacle to me is cars that are not going with the flow. That is the most dangerous yeah. thing in the road is cars that are not going on the road. Is that the same as being a truck driver when things are just not going the speed they should be going? Yeah. You know, Germany does a really good job of, of, like, ingraining into people keep right past left, and that kind of goes away in the in, in the States. Depending where you are, I anecdotally I always felt like the West Coast was like one of the worst places to be with that. Um, if you're going up and down I five, you got cars that'll do fifty five in the left lane, like it's nothing, and it's it's the most irritating thing in the world. It's one thing when it's a car or even a truck in their own regard doing that, but it's another thing when now all vehicles are going to be mandated to be driving at those speeds. Um, the, the the amount of frustration and road rage on the roads is just going to go up, in, in, but by leaps and bounds if, if this stuff passes. Well, you know, in trucking, it's unfortunate because so many of these hearings just seem theatrical and filled with ideology and not really uh, reality. Let's see what they had to say about, I bet that'll be different. Let's see what they have to say about ELD safety. The livestock industry has been exempted from uh, the ELD mandate, electronic logging devices, uh, for the last five years. Meanwhile, statistics uh, through the trucking industry as a whole show that ELDs have, in fact, reduced safety on the roads as drivers are speeding to beat the clock. Uh, how do you respond to the fact that the ELD implementation uh, may have led to less safe roadways in some areas? Well, the idea of ELDs is to make sure that drivers do not uh, drive longer than they safely can, leading to fatigue, which we know is a major cause of uh, of crashes. Uh, okay. Certainly, if uh, there is an attempt to uh, defeat or work around that, 
that could lead to an unsafe condition. Uh, I don't question. believe the solution is to abandon our, our work to uh, reduce fatigue. But I do believe that, that there are a number of steps that we can take that are part of a broader safe systems approach that will make a difference uh, in mm, conjunction gosh. with the work we do around <laughs> hours of service. And just one example that I would mention is uh, the availability of truck parking. We know one thing that creates a lot of pressure on drivers is as they get close to timing out on their hours of service, uh, they're not sure if there's going to be a safe, uh, let alone convenient place to park between uh, uh, between now and then. It's one of the reasons why we are encouraging states to use eligible formula dollars to fund truck parking and using some of our own discretionary dollars, most recently in uh, projects in Florida and in Tennessee, to directly construct more truck parking because uh, that shortage is real and an issue we hear a lot about. So he completely ignored the question. All he did was define what an ELV is, and then he said, yeah, we don't want drivers to be fatigued. But that wasn't the question. The question was that after five years of data, and it's not showing that they've increased safety, it shows that it's reduced safety. What is your opinion on that? And he had zero. Not not even zero. Just whoever's coaching him on how to, like, dodge these questions, is they're the best in the world. I mean, so – the way he breaks it down is he acknowledges what you're saying by repeating what you said back to sure. you, expanding the definition, and then pivoting to a completely irrelevant topic, completely avoiding the question. Um, yeah, wh- whoever is coaching them, man, they, they, they're they worth every penny. <laughs> oh, well, there was a nice bit of whataboutism, wasn't there, when he went to truck parking? Yeah. And it was like, look, we're talking yeah. about ELDs, and he went to truck parking. And the annoying thing about the whataboutism, it's like, well, then, Pete, what are you doing about the parking? What are you doing about that situation? Yeah. It seems like such it, a deflection. It, it, yeah, parking, I, I feel like, is becoming, like, the shiny new object that, like, you know, government or ATA is dangling in front of people to make them avoid other problems. I used to see this stuff in the Postal Service all the time, this, this kind of thinking or ideology, if you want to call it, where they come up with a plan, and then as soon as real-world data comes out and shows that the plan isn't working or the plan won't work, the thinking doesn't become, well, okay, what can we do to change the plan or, you know, work around the data? The, the thinking just goes, oh, we're just not implementing the plan hard enough. You know, when they when they came up with the idea of putting ELDs in all the trucks and mandating everybody have it, um, it was under the, the the auspice that, you know, safety would increase. Well, now we're seeing safety has gone down and the thinking isn't going, OK, what, what can we change about the ELDs? What can we change about the hours of service? Now it's just, well, OK, now we got to put cameras in the trucks. Now we got to slow the trucks down. Now we got to do this. Now we got to do it. It's never, oh, we were wrong to go this direction. It's just we got to go with this direction even further. Interesting. So, you know, I talked about this with Rachel. Our buddy Reed has declared this starting today, (laughs) Lumber Appreciation Week. He says the first annual Lumber Appreciation Week kicks off today and goes till next Tuesday. We only get they only get six days to lumpers. It's it's a six day week. Uh, Please go out of your way to thank a lumper this week. Throw an extra buck or two on their comp check. Thanks, everyone. Reed, I would if I didn't lose all my money, spend $40 on one of your hats. My, well, these are nice hats. You know, I I, I got the discount because I got the first run, so they're sure. still available if you want to purchase one. Um, no, it's, it's so funny seeing this stuff because nobody, people who don't know what lumpers are, they just think this is like a fun little thing. But like everyone who's a driver or has to deal with lumpers, they're like, okay, this is like a master master class in trolling. Because uh, I'll give you an example. So my first two paychecks when I started trucking were like fifty bucks because the company I was with at the time you had to pay out of your own pocket for lumpers. And then you were reimbursed once the checks were mailed back and then cleared. But that takes time. I, I think it's gotten faster now, but this is 2007. Um, yeah, no, lumpers are like the, the scum, absolute scum of the earth. They're some of the worst ripoff artists. I had Whoa. one load of toilet paper where um, they loaded. So I, I think they had a scam worked out with the, with the shippers because what they did was they loaded everything on pallets, but the last couple of cases were on the floor. So when you open up the trailer, it looks like the entire truck was loaded 
front to back. So they had to ha- hand unload it and they charged me $800 for it. And I was like, okay, I'll pay it. Within 20 minutes of them unloading the truck, I could feel the forklift going on. I was like, oh, you sons of bitches, you got me. You Ooh. absolutely got me. Well, Nathan Upchurch. So yeah, happy, happy, happy lump or appreciation week. <laughs> Nathan Upchurch says, catered, cater lunch to your favorite CNS facility to show you really care. Yeah, then have the office eat it. Will they, will they go and lump? Yeah. Sort of like how truck yeah. driver appreciation works. Uh, Keith <laughs> says, lumpers be like, I unloaded that trailer six hours ago and just now switched to the green light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Reed said, I take law seriously, but uh, WM implicable TK advocate says, to whom you joke about law evasion will truckers get the raw heart side of enforcement and others laugh at the law i think he might be taking this a little too seriously yeah 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 <laughs> we're all guilty of that a little bit sometimes who lumped this one let's rate the strap work look at the clampets over here who got this on the back of this what is that a ford f-150 it's or an overtime checks this morning this is, this is this is clearly not his first rodeo whoever's doing this has like done this a time or two it looks like Howl's Ugh. Moving Castle. He's got like a body, yes. a barrel in the blue over there. I, you can see the reflectiveness of a refrigerator on, on one side. And it looks like he even comes to a stop in the video, too, so nothing goes flying forward. Yeah, you know, 10 out of 10. Amazing. I, do they, I don't know where this is. I don't know. I don't know a country. Somewhere scary. Somewhere they don't have a DOT. Latham Woodward, he says, very ambitious. Jonathan Dunaway would make the Clampets proud. Cindy Curtis, oh my God. Steven Lopez, 10 out of 10 on the strap work. Any, anyone have the guy's number? Anthony Heward, everything <laughs> must go. Dave O'Brien, either he prepared for the coming doom for, from AI takeover, or he took the movie Mortal Engines a little too seriously. But look at the weight distribution. Negligible sway at breaking. So he yeah. liked what you saw. And Carrie Donacci, yeah. she said, seven out of ten stars in the strap work. I see multiple straps, and it's all being held in. Pretty ingenious to be able to get all of that in the bed of an F-150. Hopefully he doesn't find a big hot, a pothole and falls <laughs> off. Yeah, those roads look pretty nice. Let's take a look at an idiot. All right, well, allegedly an idiot. Well, we have video evidence. Do we have to say allegedly? Here's a lady in Hawaii, uh, for for some reason, decided to drive straight into the ocean in her vehicle. (laughs) You guys have sound on this? Turn that sound up. I want to hear this. Yeah, here we go. So, and this lady, to look at her, they're like, hey, you got to go back. And look at her. She looks like she's trying to, like, field answers on the showcase showdown on prices, right? Like, oh, 18036. 14920 later. No sense of urgency. There there are just some people who whether it's the voice on the radio, the the face on the TV or the voice on their GPS, they just say whatever. They do whatever it says. She's keeping the uh she's keeping the seatbelt on too. This is really dangerous like when you're when you're going to submerge. That's a good time to take the seatbelt off. Yeah, no. Thankfully, at least she had her window down. There, there were when I first moved to Florida, there were a lot of cases of people driving into canals overnight and then dying because you know you, you get stuck and the, the water rushes up to the doors and you can't get the door open. Well, thankfully, these good men jumped in here too yeah. and, and helped this lady out. She was in a bad spot. Maybe give her directions to where to go next time. Well, anyways, that goes on for a while. She eventually gets out, and you can actually see the ramp. It's like 40 yards of ramp. There's no way she couldn't see it. We don't have time to see the whole thing. It's on on my Twitter. Hey, future supply chain's coming up. Are you excited? Yeah, absolutely. The first one was a blast. Can't wait to go again. Yeah, we're going to be in Cleveland. I might even catch a Guardians game while out there, do some live set, get some footage, shake hands with the people. I've never been to Cleveland. I've I've never been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not me either. It's going to be a lot of fun. First time for everything. Well, 
Hey, if it's the first time for you, many times in Cleveland, come down, go to live.freightwaves.com. Go get your tickets. It's right uh, June 20-something to June 22nd, something like that. Uh, find us on Twitter at FWWhatTheTruck or on TikTok or all the social. Find me on Twitter at Timothy Juno. That's D-O-O-N-E-R. Take care and don't be a stranger.